It's good to see you. It is good to see people in the room that are not empty chairs, because for the last five months when I teach Sunday school, it has been alone in this room, and uh, so I'm really, really grateful that you're here, really grateful that you decided to be in the room uh, instead of watching this online or watching it later on. So three weeks in of this series called Rethinking the Church, and uh, hopefully you've listened to or watched the last two weeks of of Sunday school. We've been uh, learning about what does it mean to be the church. And so two weeks ago, we learned about uh, some biblical images, things like the church is the body of Christ or the temple of the Holy Spirit or the family of God. And then last week, we learned about historic marks. So we learned that the, the early church would define the church as one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And if you didn't listen last week, don't freak out about that word Catholic. It just means universal or global, right? There's no gospel for the Chinese, and there's no different gospel for Africa, and a different gospel for Australia. There is one gospel, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are all part of the one church, the Catholic church. Um, and it's apostolic, meaning that we, we stand on the, the testimony of the apostles as we find it in the New Testament. So this morning, we're going to define the church yet again with part three, which is just theological attributes. And you may be wondering, uh, why are we still defining the church? <laughs> uh, we've been doing this for two weeks. This is now the third week. Uh, isn't this kind of overkill? And the, and the reason why is because I want to lay a foundation for you that we will build on all semester long when we get to more specific things later on in the months ahead. So why do we need even more ideas? Why do we need even more attributes? We learned about biblical images. We learned about those historic marks. Today, we're going to learn about these theological attributes. And these attributes are contemporary meaning uh, they're, they're, they're not new in the sense that they've never existed before, but they're new in the sense that we're thinking about them. So theology, how we study God, is often a work of translation, right? How many of you just really enjoy reading like early medieval English? Probably very few of us, right? How many more of us enjoy reading old, old Latin church fathers. None of us, right? And that's because they were writing for their time. They were writing for their context. And theology is a work that has to take place throughout history. And so it has to make sense for us in the current culture, in our current community. And that's what we want to do today. So we're going to take kind of all that we've learned over the last two weeks, hopefully try to distill it in a way that it makes sense to us for our current context. So we're going to look at seven theological attributes this morning, and they build off those biblical images and historic marks. So if you've listened or watched those two lessons, you'll, you'll hear some repetition all throughout. And I'm getting these seven attributes from a guy named Greg Allison, his book on the church that was extremely formative for me. So I think it'll be really helpful for us as well. So before we get to our seven points, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. God in heaven, I'm so thankful for your grace in our lives. I'm thankful for this group of students and adults that have gathered this morning to hear from you. As we think about what does it mean to be the church, as we think about what does it mean to uh, be invested in the life of the body of Christ, would you help us by your spirit to understand with clarity and to serve and love for your glory and your namesake alone. Help us to learn and to study well this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to fly through the seven marks, seven points. And the first point is that the church is doxological. 
The church is doxological. And that's a weird word that sometimes we don't understand uh, or we may have never seen before. But all that word means is that the church is God-glorifying. The church gives glory to God. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. If you make it to James in 1 and 2 Peter in the New Testament, you've gone too far. Hebrews 13, starting in verse 15. The point that I want to make in, in this attribute is that the church is a worshiping church. We're always worshiping someone or something. And in Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 15, uh, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the writer of Hebrews is telling you and me that everything we do in the life of the church should be almost viewed as a sacrifice of praise, a, a, something that should be pleasing to the Lord, something that would give Him great glory and honor. The church exists to worship God. So our main priority is to magnify God in our own lives and to put that glory on display for the world to see. So everything we do, everything we say and teach and practice, it leads us towards that one end, the glory of God and the worship of God. So sanctification, growing in your holiness, growing in Christ-likeness, the process of discipleship, it intensifies your worship because the more you know about God, the more deeply you can love Him. Missions, the idea that we would go take the gospel to the ends of the earth, broadens worship because now there are worshipers from every tribe and tongue and people and language. Service, serving one another, authenticates our worship because we're actually practicing what we preach. You see what I'm saying? Everything that we do goes back to this point that the church is doxological. It worships God. But since we're always worshiping something, the church is always at risk of aiming its worship away from God and onto someone or something else. So we may know people who say they follow Jesus, but by their lives, it seems like they, they value something or someone else as ultimate. And God forbid, we, we may know churches that say that they love Jesus, that say that they love the gospel, but by their actions and by their preaching, they would actually put something else other than the worship of God as ultimate. I pray that this wouldn't be true of us, that we would constantly go back to this point. And this attribute is connected to the idea of the church as the temple. So we remind ourselves that we were, in the first week, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the temple is the place where God is glorified which we've seen over the last two weeks. So that's what the church is primarily. This first point, the church is doxological. It worships God. All right, second point. Second attribute. The church is word-centered. The church is word-centered. Now, I use the word word uh, very specifically because there are two senses in which the word uh, is, is meant here. First is that the church is centered on the word incarnate. Jesus Christ. So think about John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God in the beginning with God. Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh, John tells us, that He dwelled among His people. 
So the Word of God made flesh is Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone of our faith. Now, a cornerstone, if you're thinking about a building, sets the the pace for the rest of construction of that building. So you set the cornerstone in place, everything else goes around that stone. It's the guiding stone of the whole building. So if you get the cornerstone wrong, you get the whole building wrong, and the whole building is in trouble. You don't have to turn there, but you can just write down Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Picking up this idea of the cornerstone, Paul says, Ephesians 3, verse 20, or 220 rather, I'm sorry. That it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That is the household of God, the church. Built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So without Christ as our foundation, without Him as our cornerstone, we do not meet the definition, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, of being the church founded on the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone being Christ Jesus Himself. So He's the cornerstone, but Christ is also the head of the body, something that we've learned before in the first week. We are followers, not of any just random doctrine, not just any just random teaching. No, we're followers of Jesus. And it's through Jesus that we enter into the church. It's His gospel that we're spurred on to share with the world. It's His promise of coming again that we eagerly await. You see, all of the things that we say and do not only is centered on the worship of God, but it's oriented towards Christ as the Word incarnate. But the church is also centered on another kind of Word. The church is centered on the word inspired, and that is the scriptures, the Bible. The church must found its life, set its life on the revealed word of God, the scriptures, because we believe that the Bible is sufficient for the Christian life. Students, there's nothing else you need to know to be a faithful follower of Jesus than what you can find in this book. There's nothing else you need to know. There's other things to know, and there are other people, men and women from old and from today, who have thought deeply about this book and have written about this book or spoken about this book that will be helpful to you. But ultimately, all that you need to be like Christ in your life, the Bible is sufficient for you. The Word of God is enough. We believe that it contains all we need to know to follow God and to live holy, God-glorifying, and eternally satisfying lives. The Bible communicates to us what God has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. And it also communicates how we ought to live in light of the gospel. So, again, don't turn there, I'll just say it for you, but 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. It's from the, the breath of the Spirit. And it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent or complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul is telling Timothy, and he's telling you and me, that what we need is found in the Bible because all of Scripture is profitable for you and me for training in righteousness. That that you and I would be raised up to be faithful witnesses of the gospel. But if we're centered on the Word, ideally, 
then that means that we can fall away from being centered on the word, that we can swerve away from this. So 2 Timothy tells us this in chapter 4. Verses 3 and 4. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So what Paul is telling Timothy is that you and I, as sinners we don't naturally gravitate towards the things of God. We don't naturally gravitate towards submitting our life to Scripture. And so we're going to look for other things to submit our lives to. We're going to find things that will tickle our ears or itch our ears, as he says here. And They'll accumulate for ourselves teachers to suit our own passions. We'll turn away from listening to the truth. We'll wander off into myths, into delusion, into things that are not true, not real, not helpful. So the church constantly has to be correcting itself towards this end, that we would constantly be centered on the Word. Because Scripture raises us up, it also takes away what we don't need to have. It pierces us, is what Hebrews 4 tells us. Like a double-edged sword, it convicts us of sin and reorients us to the path that we ought to be following. So the church is focused, it's centered on the Word. The Word incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ and the word inspired in the Holy Bible. Both of these things are God's special revelation to you and me. Without these two things, without Christ and the Scriptures, we would not know God. But He's chosen to reveal Himself to you and to me through these means. All right, third attribute. So doxological, word-centered number three, the church is spirit-activated. The church is spirit-activated. So the third attribute means that all of our power as the church, all of our energy, all of our motivation, all of our sustainability comes from the Holy Spirit. You and I cannot do this on our own. We cannot do this in our own strength. We grow as the church in our glorifying in God and our trust in the Word through the power of the Spirit. So how do I glorify the Lord? How do you glorify the Lord? By the Spirit. How do you center your life on the Word incarnate in Jesus Christ? By the Spirit. How do you hide God's Word in your heart so that you may not sin against God? By the Spirit. All of the things that we do as the people of God are empowered by, they're motivated by the Spirit. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 kind of gives us this sense that, that it's... Uh, let me just read it to you. We're moving from one degree of glory to the next, he says in verse 18. And we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul is telling you and me, how do we grow in Christ's likeness? It's the work of the Spirit. How do we become more like Jesus? It's by the Spirit. So there's a, a man uh, named Wolfhart Pannenberg, who uh, sounds about as interesting as his name. And he is a very difficult and sometimes very, very off theologian. So when he gets it wrong, he gets it wrong. So I'm not necessarily saying you should go read everything that Pannenberg says, but I think he gets it exactly right as we're thinking about the Spirit here. Listen to what he writes. He says, The gift of the Spirit is not just for individual believers. 
but it aims at the building up of the fellowship of believers, at the founding and the constant giving of life to the church. By the Spirit, each is lifted above individual particularity in order in Christ to form with all other believers the fellowship of the church. In other words, what Pannenberg is saying is, God did not give you His Spirit just for you. God gave you His Spirit for everyone else in the room, for everyone else that calls themselves members of this body, and that the Spirit's work is by bringing you together by His power so that you all could be lifted up higher than any individual can on his own. That's the power of the Spirit in our lives, and it's the power of the Spirit in the life of the church. We see this idea from last week when we said that the early church called the church one, that they were united. There is a unity that exists among the people of God. The Spirit affects that unity through His act of saving believers, bestowing gifts to believers, and then producing the spiritual fruit that we learned about in Galatians. We cannot do any of this without the Spirit. He animates us and empowers us. He encourages us when we fall short of His glory. So we must be aware of the power that is at our disposal to remain faithful in maintaining the unity and the bond of peace as the people of God. So if if what we're doing this morning or what we're doing as the church in the midst of a really weird time in the world, if all that we're doing is in our own strength, then we're not going to be very successful. Uh, We're not going to really produce much fruit because you and I aren't the ones with the power. But if we say, God, we need your presence, we need your power, we need your spirit to do work among us that we can never accomplish on our own. God, would you move? Would you work? Would you act? Well, then, then the church may see something unexpected because the Spirit is the one with the power. The Spirit is the one who activates the church. All right, we've got to move forward. Attribute number four, the church is covenantal. The church is covenantal. So the first three attributes, doxological, word-centered, spirit-activated, these are really theologically minded, meaning we are looking at God, right? Doxological, the glory of God, word-centered, we're looking at Jesus, spirit-activated, we're looking at the spirit. The next few that we're going to see emphasize a kind of one another aspect. So the church is covenantal. Now this means, of course, that we live in a covenant with God as believers, So we learned in Galatians that you and I are the true sons of Abraham by faith. We now get to be a part of this new covenant in Christ. And that covenant is between you and me and God. But it also means that the church is made up of believers who have made a covenant with one another. So if you're a member of Lakeview Baptist Church, you signed a church covenant. You said, I am committing to do these things and uphold these attributes and these kind of character qualities as a member of this church. So when you join the church as a member, you agree to uphold uphold that covenant before God and one another. Why? Why did you have to sign a covenant? Where do we see that in Scripture, right? Where's Where's the Bible verse on signing a covenant to be a member? Well, there isn't one. There isn't a Bible verse in in particular, but there is a pattern that we see all throughout Scripture. So I'm just going to fly through this really quickly. But Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 we see two instances of church discipline, right? So Matthew 18, we get to the point where if a brother sins against you and he doesn't listen to you and he doesn't listen to you and two or three others, then you tell it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, then let him be to you as a tax collector and as a Gentile. Well, who is the church in that verse? 
How does that person know who they need to tell about this brother who sinned against them? It seems that the church, the body of Christ, knows who is a part of that church and who is not. They have to know who the people are in order to make these decisions of discipline. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells the church in Corinth to put this man out of your church so that he might learn not to blaspheme. Deliver him over to Satan, Paul says. That makes little sense if the believers in question had not submitted to one another already. That that was actually something that they were going to follow. Ephesians 4 gives us a a big description of new life as the people of God. So you read Ephesians 1 through 3, you hear all about the gospel. You read Ephesians 4 through 6, you hear all about how to live as a member of the body of Christ. And Paul lays out a new God-exalting rhythm of the church that implies a commitment from members one to another. So I can't outdo one another in showing honor in the church unless I know who those people are. Hebrews also tells us that pastors will give an account before God to the flock in their care. Covenanting with one another gives clarity regarding who in the world that means, right? So am I going to stand before God and give an account to every teenager who's ever been in the youth ministry while I've been here? Or am I going to give an account to those who have said, this is my home. I have made my investment here. I have made my commitment here. So your friend that came for two weeks and goes to another church, I'm not accountable to them, even though they've been here. Why? Because they're not a part of this body. They haven't covenanted with this family of faith. Ever since the Reformation, churches have adopted formal church covenants to make this biblical pattern that we see explicit. So if you are a member, or if you plan to join soon, which, hey, today is Discover Lakeview. So if you haven't joined, your family hasn't made a commitment to be a member of Lakeview yet, you should totally check it out. But it would be helpful for you to read and learn the church covenant, both for your own sake as well as the sake of those around you. Because you've agreed to uphold these things and you've also agreed to hold one another accountable to these things. So the church is covenantal. Number five, the church is confessional. The church is confessional. This is pretty foundational to everything that we believe. And if you've been coming on a Wednesday nights and equipping groups, you know we're studying one of the earliest confessions of faith in all of Christianity, the Apostles' Creed. So all throughout history, the the church has confessed a shared belief of what it is to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The church is made up of these confessing believers. So we see in Scripture, actually, snippets of what many scholars believe were early church confessions. I'm just going to read one for you uh, very quickly in 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. If you read that in your Bible, you'll probably see it looks like poetry. And that's because most scholars believe that that was part of an early confession. It wasn't just something that Paul was writing. Paul was saying that in a way that the church would have understood. Oh, he's referencing that confession that we believe. He's he's referencing that set statement of these doctrines that we hold true. At Lakeview, we continue the pattern of the historic church and the New Testament by affirming some confessional documents. 
The primary one for us is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So if you're a member of Lakeview, hopefully you have read and you have agreed to the teachings of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It's just a summary of the main things we believe as the people of God at Lakeview. So we may believe more deeply than what it says, and we may go uh, more intensely than what it says, but it is our basic confession. The church is confessional. We believe the same thing. All right, number six, the church is missional. The church is missional. So we believe that God has given us a common mission. So that doesn't mean that your hobbies go away or your passions go away and we're just going to do this one thing. No, it means that God has given the church a common mission that you now can use your gifts and your talents and your passions and your hobbies to help accomplish for the glory of God. So we know this at Lakeview, right? What's the common mission of the church? It's, it's the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that they've commanded, all that Jesus has commanded. We do that in the authority of Christ. This is Acts 1.8, that you're going to go and be God's witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? So in the Spirit's power, like we talked about earlier, we're going to go make much of the glory of God by introducing people to the Word incarnate through the Scriptures as the people who have covenanted together based on the confession of faith that we believe, we're going to accomplish this mission. That's what it means to be the church. We have a common mission. The church expresses this missional attribute in three ways. First, we expand. So churches are not ultimately intended to grow up. They're intended to grow out. So we expand. We send people out to the ends of the earth. We don't make a big name for ourselves and bring glory to ourselves, but we spread out to make Jesus big in the hearts of people all around the world. So we expand. Second, we contextualize. We contextualize. The gospel must not be changed from what we have received in Scripture. We don't change the gospel. There is one gospel. There's one name under heaven by which men must be saved. But the way you may explain that one gospel to a French refugee living in London may be different from the way you'd explain it to an African child in her local tribe. You, you see what I'm saying? The, the, the content of the gospel is unchanging. But the way that we explain it, the way that we might contextualize it to people where they are may change. Not all churches, for example, need to look like Lakeview. So if you go to... If you go to Uganda, where I've been before, and you go find the refugee camps in Uganda, and you find a building like this, and they do things exactly like we do here in the West, and especially here in the South, it's going to be very, very weird. And all of the people who live there will be like, I'm not going there, that place is weird. The things that they do is weird. The songs that they sing, I don't understand because I don't speak English. And the, the instruments that they play, I don't understand them, and they are new and different. And the kind of music that they play and the kind of way that they talk and the way that they teach is very, very different. The gospel is able to be contextualized to any context, any culture, any community throughout all time. So we expand, we contextualize, and third, we promote Catholicity. We talked about this last week. What does it mean to be Catholic? That we're universal. We promote to the world that the people of God are not competing against one another. So if 
A church in town is growing in numbers that is just huge and exponential because people are coming to know Christ and they're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're hearing the true gospel preached from somebody who really believes that the Bible is true. We don't have to be sad that those people aren't coming to Lakeview. No, we can celebrate that God is saving them. We can celebrate that God is doing wonderful things among His people because we have a common mission. The church down the road, the church here, the church across town, the church in another state, the church around the world has one mission. Make disciples for the glory of God. So that's the sixth point. Last point, last attribute. The one that may be a little bit more difficult to, to wrap our heads around. The church is already and not yet. The church is already and not yet. So we need to see that we are a body of believers the church, who gather in a specific place in a specific time. So so here's what I mean. Lakeview Baptist Church did not exist 100 years ago. It didn't exist. It hadn't been planted yet. I believe it was planted in the early 50s. So 100 years ago, Lakeview Baptist Church, this people of God in Auburn, Alabama, did not exist. But today it exists. So the church is already in the sense that it matters that we physically exist, that we are in a specific place at a specific time. It means something that we are specifically Lakeview Baptist Church and not just a part of the universal church. It currently exists in a real way. So Paul's letters, for example, just help us understand this, right? They were written to churches that existed in time and space. They met in specific places, usually in homes. So in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, you'll see to the church in Corinth. He's not just writing a letter going, hey, to any Christians who want to read this. He's saying, no, these specific people that I know who meet in this specific place that I've been to, I'm writing to you. Students, it matters that we are a specific people. It matters that we meet in a specific place. It means that physical space matters. It isn't everything. But where we meet together, how it looks, what's included, where things are, it all matters. How we worship, if we're honest, is affected by where we are, what it looks like, what it sounds like, and more. Right? So if we were huddled together in this room, kind of nothing really going on, we just started to sing kind of a cappella, some songs, that would be sweet. That would be awesome. That would be amazing. It would be different than if the church in the sanctuary was packed to the brim, the orchestra was there, the choir was there, Adam was leading, everybody was singing together. You see what I mean? There's just something different. Something, something is different between here and there, between this group of people and the church meeting together. It matters. It matters. But the church... It's not just already. It's not just this specific people. It's not just this family of faith that meets at this location. It's also not yet. We only taste the goodness of the Lord now as we live as the church. But one day we will feast at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We strive towards unity and reconciliation now, but one day we will experience perfect love and unity with one another. It means that we know that here and now is great, but it is not all that there is. It's not all that there is. We as the church are looking forward to something far greater that is not yet here. One day, 
we will be with God in the new heavens and new earth. The church of Jesus Christ will gather all together as one to worship Him in spirit and truth. So we should not be surprised then if we are not yet where we will be. We shouldn't be surprised when the church messes up. We shouldn't be surprised when people in the church get things wrong. We shouldn't be surprised when the church gets things off or when we mess up as believers, when someone in the church acts contrary to the attributes that we've just listed. We have not yet arrived at our future hope in Christ. The wedding of Christ and his bride has been planned, but it has not yet happened. So, So listen to Greg Allison, the guy that I referenced at the beginning. He says, practically speaking, the already not yet characteristic of the church explains why the church always champions grace and counts on it to overcome entrenched sinfulness, yet at times appropriately exercises church discipline. So we we give grace and we practice discipline. This attribute also explains why the church should hold its members to the high standards established for them by Scripture, yet must bear with their mistakes and failures and forgive them when they sin. So we hold accountable And we also forgive when sin takes place. It reminds me of one of the last verses we looked at in our series this summer on Galatians, in Galatians 6-9. Do not grow weary of doing good, for in the end we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. You will reap a reward if you stay the course. So do good. Keep on. Keep moving. It's going to be hard. You will mess up. The church will mess up. We will get it wrong. But if we will stay the course, if we will maintain faithfulness, we will reap a reward. Students, this is who we are. We're the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the family of God, the people of God, His own possession. We're united in our faith. We're holy, set apart by God to be His people. We're a part of the Catholic universal church throughout time and space. We're standing on the authority of scriptures as we've seen revealed through the apostles. We preach the word. We teach the scriptures. We practice these ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I don't know about you, if you were watching last week or if you were here, it was so sweet to watch a baptism. To just be reminded that this is, this is what we do as the church. We, we profess and affirm with somebody who's professing their faith in Christ. We watch them go into the water to signify their death to the old self and their resurrection in Christ. Sweet. We observe the Lord's Supper. Hopefully soon. <laughs> it's been a long time. We remember God's condescension to us in Christ and we take part of the bread and the cup signifying Jesus' body and His blood. We administer church discipline. We hold one another accountable, right? And then these seven things that we just looked at, that we worship God, we center our lives on the Word, we're activated and empowered by the Spirit, we we covenant with one another, we confess the same faith, we're on the same mission, and we are going somewhere together. That's what it means to be the church. So I hope and pray that you would see how sweet it is, what a privilege it is, what a treasure it is, to be brought into the family of God. Let me pray for you, and then we'll uh, give you some announcements and some next steps. Oh God, we are humbled and grateful, and God, we worship you for your wise idea to call together your sons and daughters to make them into a spiritual family. 
to call us to be the church. And all that that means, I pray, God, that you would help us, help these students, help these leaders, help me to really grasp the weight, the honor, the privilege, the responsibility that you have put before us as the people of God. So Lord, I pray that in the next few minutes, the conversations around, uh, around, these, uh, around this space would be helpful, would be edifying, would be challenging, would give you great glory. God, we pray that you would move among us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.